the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Patriot is WWTC Minneapolis, St. Paul. FM 107.5, K298CO, Minneapolis. Intelligent Radio. With SRN News, I'm Jason Walker. President Biden's handling of the economy continues to drag down his approval rating. Here's White House correspondent Greg Clugston. More than two-thirds of Americans surveyed disapprove of Joe Biden's stewardship of the national economy. A new APNORC poll puts the president's overall job approval at just 38 percent. Most Republicans give Mr. Biden low marks on the economy, while only about a quarter of all Americans say the national economy is good or that the country is headed in the right direction. Greg Clugston. Washington. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell released from his rehab facility where he had physical therapy for a concussion caused by a fall earlier in the month. The 81-year-old veteran lawmaker from Kentucky says that he will be working from home for the next few days. This is SRN News. This week in the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. China's Xi meets Russia's Putin. Senator Tom Cotton. Joe Biden's weakness in his first two years in office have created what they see as new opportunities for advancing their shared interests. Join us for our program and sign up for our podcast at townhallreview.com. Every Saturday evening at 7 and Sunday nights at 11. Here on AM 1280, The Patriot, Intelligent Radio. Go nowhere with the Northern Alliance Radio Network full hour with the closer edition, Brad Carlson, coming up in moments here on AM 1280 The Patriot. But first, a look at your weather forecast tonight. Low of 23 degrees, mostly cloudy skies throughout your overnight. Monday, partly sunny for the afternoon, high of 42. All the perks of a rewards card with none of the hassle. The AM 1280 The Patriot Fan Club. Go to am1280thepatriot.com, click on Fan Club for member-exclusive access to prizes, giveaways, getaways, and so much more. Portions of this program may have been pre-recorded. The following program was pre-recorded and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Stand by for the Northern Alliance Radio Network and go launch sequence. Engineering. Go flight. Master control. Go flight. Studio engineer. Go flight. We are go for launch in T-minus three, two, one. The Northern Alliance Radio Network is on the air. Live and local from the AM 1280 The Patriot Studios in Egan, here is the closer, Brad Carlson. AM 1280 The Patriot. Northern Alliance Radio Network. Back with hour number two of the broadcast. We like to call the closer. That's me, Brad Carlson. Thanks, as always, for tuning into our show. You can check out my blog at bradcarlson.org, and you can feel free to follow along the broadcast at uh, Twitter. Just use hashtag NarnShow. That's hashtag N-A-R-N Show for all comments or questions on this particular segment. And if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, feel free to do so. Go to Facebook.com, do a search for the Northern Alliance Radio Network, and give our Facebook page a like or a follow if you haven't done so already. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. I got a guest of Palooza this uh, second hour, so we want to get right into uh, talking with our very first guest. Uh, the first guest joining us these next couple of segments is James Rosen. He is currently the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He has uh, authored many books, but the one book in particular we are going to talk to him about is obviously his latest release uh, entitled, entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. And, of course, Scalia refers to the late uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and talking about his early life from the year of his birth, 1936, until the year when he was officially confirmed to the United States Supreme Court in 1986. So at this time, it is an honor to be joined by the aforementioned James Rosen. James Rosen, honored to be joined by you today, sir. How are you? 
Brad, I'm honored that they'll have me. Thanks so much for your kindness. Absolutely. Well, uh, a lot of us here, uh, a lot of listeners here, the broadcast, certainly old enough to remember uh, Antonin Scalia's uh, tenure at the Supreme Court. A lot of fascinating stories regarding his tenure at the court. But obviously that's not the focus of your book. The focus is the time leading up to that point. And that in and of itself is a very fascinating life. You know, we're often uh, very intellectually curious about those who uh, serve in these high-profile positions, don't get to know a lot about them personally. So this was a great opportunity to take a deep dive into the early life of Antonin Scalia. I guess James Rosen will, I guess, start from the beginning. Uh, Do I have this correctly, Antonin Scalia? Uh, first-generation uh, American. I know his father was born in Italy. Uh, what can you tell us about his parents, I guess, to start off? That's right. Well, Brad, thanks again for having me. This book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, captures the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. Okay. And so I hope at some point to do the second volume, which will uh, chronicle his Supreme Court oh, years. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so... Uh, I had the privilege of knowing Justice Scalia a little bit, which is why I wrote this book. Uh, when I first got to Washington as a young Washington correspondent at the time for Fox News back in 1999, one of the first things I did was write to Justice Scalia uh, to seek an interview with him. And this commenced between us an unusual and sometimes comical correspondence that spanned about two years. And we wound up having lunch together a couple of times, just the two of us. We drank wine. He made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He said, come on, come on, come on. So there I am now shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. And he even drove me back to my office a couple times in his car. And I have confirmed Brad through interviews with classmates who traveled to debate tournaments with Scalia back in the 1950s, all the way up through Supreme Court clerks in the 21st century that – being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia was as unnerving an experience for them as it was for me in the nation's capital. Um, I resolved from those early experiences with him that someday I would write about him. Uh, And what I found is that the two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia that are already out there, both of which came out when he was alive, one of which he cooperated extensively with, the other not at all, both came out in pretty much the same place, which is to say open in their hostility to Justice Scalia Mm. and his legacy. Uh, and what he stood for. So this is the first comprehensive account of his life where all the important elements of his life, including uh, his father's immigrant experience, uh, his mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants, uh, their Catholicism and how it provided what I call the rocket fuel for his rise to greatness, uh, are all treated in uh, the requisite depth and scope for the first time. Uh, This book makes use of a vast array of Uh, documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous hostile biographers. Uh, And so I like to say that this is uh, not only the first comprehensive account of Antonin Scalia's life, it's the first accurate account of Antonin Scalia because it is the first admiring biography of him. And yes, to your point, his father came to Italy from, or came to the United States from Italy Mm -hmm. in 1920 with uh, $400 in his pocket and not speaking a word of English and made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants. She became a school teacher, and they were devout Catholics. And so from those three influences, Brad, the sacred foundational text and the liturgy of the Catholic Church, uh, the influence of his father, who in his own academic writings warned of the perils of dishonest translators and interpreters distorting the original meaning of a given text, And from uh, his mother, who valued form, composition, grammar, and and venerated the classics in her own way, young Nino Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for the original inviolable meaning of a sacred text. And he carried this with him throughout his life and into his work as a judge and a justice. Oh, that's that's fascinating. I love that little fact, because obviously when people think of Antonin Scalia, particularly his time in the bench at the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, obviously... uh, his uh, uh, insistence that the Constitution was not a living, breathing document, rather, rather to take it in its originalist form. I just love how uh, he, he came to that, uh, to that philosophy regarding that. So that's a fascinating tale indeed. Uh, I guess let's talk about his fascination with uh, the law itself. You know, you get some young people, they, as they start to foster some of the uh, interests they have in their lives, and obviously young Antonin Scalia ultimately decided he wanted to go uh, into, go to law school, get into the legal profession. Uh, most that get into the legal profession, I don't know that they have 
ultimately the aspirations, their top goal is to be a sitting justice on the United States Supreme Court. Yet that was Antonin Scalia's goal from a young age. Is that right, James Rosen? Yes, this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, I think solved the one enduring mystery that was still associated with Antonin Scalia's life. This is someone who served 29 terms on the Supreme Court. Certainly there was controversy associated with his life, but there was no hint of scandal. He was a devout Catholic, uh, and he and his wife of 55 years, Maureen Scalia, raised nine children. Mm -hmm. uh, And they really did live exemplary lives. One of the other sets of documents that's uh, that's seen here in these pages for the first time are his his FBI files, declassified after his death, and they run hundreds of pages because he was subjected to four FBI background checks within 14 years uh, as he rose through the executive and the judiciary, and hundreds of pages of this agent after agent uh, being told the same thing. This is the most honest man I've ever met. This is the smartest man I've ever met. This is the most qualified person you can imagine to serve as a federal judge. Um, so there, there was no hint of scandal. But one mystery was when in his life, how early on, did this ambition to serve on the Supreme Court begin to burn within him? And Justice Scalia's most ardent defenders, his family, his law clerks, others in academia, uh, were always leery of this ambition being attributed to him too early in life because they thought that uh, it contributed to a false narrative that was promulgated in the first two biographies, which I call the careerist narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, this held that Scalia's rise to greatness was not fueled by devout Catholic faith and uh, an extraordinary capacity for hard work and sacrifices of Maureen Scalia and so on, but rather was simply the result of careerist cunning that he would tailor his opinions to uh, be able to get people of power to uh, advance his career, and that was totally false. And I interviewed colleagues who served with him at all points who said that that was false, that he was not afraid to render opinions that he himself didn't agree with or that he thought might uh, displease those who could advance uh, his career. But this book, this story is told for the first time anywhere. I interviewed someone who knew Scalia in high school and who later became an Opus Dei priest who's still with us um, in his mid-'80s and still active as as a priest and blogging and preaching and who had never been interviewed before about his almost lifelong relationship with Antonin Scalia, I asked. Uh, uh, this man's name is Father Bob Connor of New Jersey. Okay. Uh, and uh, he said no, he hadn't been interviewed by any reporters or journalists or biographers or the FBI. But in the summer of 1959, uh, as a dear friend of Scalia's from grade school or high school days, Connor made the decision to drop out of med school. His mother was distraught, and she summoned Nino Scalia to the Connor family home in Queens to try and talk sense into her son. Mm-hmm. This was June or early July 1959. Scalia was 22 years old, second year of Harvard Law. And he showed up at Bob Connor's home, where he was no stranger, and surprised Bob and, and said to him, what are you doing? And Father Connor relates it to me that he said, well, I'm going to Rome to study Opus Dei. And I said, devout a Catholic as Scalia was, did he know what Opus Dei was? And Father Connor told me, I explained it to him. It's that Opus Dei holds that we find the sanctity in everyday life. And Scalia, according to Father Connor, nodded and said, sounds good to me. And this story has never been told before. Connor then asked Scalia, what are you doing? And according to Father Connor, he replied, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Connor asked him, how are you going to do that? (laughs) And as he recounted it to me, he said, James, he told me he had a law firm job lined up somewhere in Ohio. And as it happened, out of law school, Scalia's first years uh, uh, as a professional were spent six years practicing private law in Cleveland, Ohio, for Jones Day, which then is now had a Washington office. And Scalia told Bob Connor, they have a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington and I will rise. And I said, did it sound comical or fanciful when he said that? He said, no, Nino was driven. Was it a, a divine calling for him, do you think? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor described it to me, Brad, was that this was a convergence of two transcendent moments, almost like a shared epiphany, where two friends, um, as they set out on their path, say to each other, where are you going? And one says, I'm going to religion, in effect. And the other says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And over the years, he waited and he thought to himself, Father Connor, who was ordained as an Opus Dei priest in 1964, when will Scalia rise? Where is the rising? And finally, he saw the news in 1982 when President Reagan nominated Scalia to the appellate bench. That's before he became a Supreme Court justice. And Father Bob told me that he said, 
you have risen. And he wrote and, and uh, reestablished the friendship with Scalia that was to last the rest of Scalia's life. I think Father Connor is an unimpeachable witness and source, and I think he settles definitively this question of when, how early on, Antonin Scalia first harbored this ambition. The fact is, there are certain people who are gifted and blessed, uh, Brad, to know what they want to do early in life. Mm -hmm. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, said later that he knew from the age of five he wanted to be a cartoonist. Scalia, as a young man, understood what the Supreme Court was and why he belonged there. And his pursuit of it within the bounds of propriety, uh, and uh, given the legacy he leaves us, uh, we are all, including the most ardent defenders of Justice Scalia, better off that he had that understanding and did pursue it. Once again, we are joined by James Rosen. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and also best-selling historian talking about his latest book entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Some absolutely fascinating uh, anecdotes that James has shared with us thus far this first segment. Uh, James Rosen, we need to take a, a quick break. Are you able to hold for us uh, for one more segment? You bet. Okay, fantastic. James Rosen, again, will be back uh, with another segment to talk about his book. Again, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Talking about Scalia's first 50 years on this planet, the 50 years before he became a United States Supreme Court Justice. Back with another segment on the broadcast with me, Brad Carlson. Go nowhere. Soaking up the sun in Fiji, walking through the Sculpture Garden in Minneapolis, or standing in awe at the Grand Canyon. We're where you are. Stream AM 1280 The Patriot at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Divorce forces a father to focus on what's most important, his children. You may no longer be a husband, but you'll always be a dad. In the divorce process, this comes down to three key concerns, physical custody, decision-making, as well as financial support. Each of these is important, and it's important that you choose a lawyer that cares as much about these issues as you do. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Twin Cities attorneys, a partner men can count on, CordellCordell.com. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply or play. Stop, opt out. Visit website for financing details. Windowappointmentnow.com. Attention all homeowners. Do you know when to replace your windows? Feeling too hot or cold? It's time to replace. Fog between the glass. Time to replace. Spending too much on expensive energy that literally goes out the window? It's definitely time to replace. If you've put off replacing windows in your home because it's too expensive, here's great news. You can now get a free in-home window consultation and free price quote from Renewal by Anderson. The company with the most five-star reviews among leading full-service window replacement companies. And right now, you can buy one and get one 40% off. Just text EXTRA to 200-300 for your free consultation on top-quality affordable windows or patio doors, all with super affordable financing options. Text EXTRA to 200-300 right now to buy one and get one 40% off. But hurry, these big dollar savings won't last long. Text the word EXTRA to 200-300. Don't wait. Text EXTRA to 200-300. Do you have Medicare and do you use a CPAP machine? This is a national health care alert regarding your CPAP supplies. Using a clean CPAP mask and clean supplies is important to staying healthy. The best way to make sure your CPAP equipment is clean is to get new supplies. If you have Medicare, we have great news. Medicare will pay for you to have new clean supplies every 90 days. We'll even do all the paperwork for you to make sure that there's little to no out-of-pocket cost to you. And you don't even have to leave your home. We provide free in-home delivery. So if you're a CPAP user and you have Medicare, staying healthy with new CPAP equipment is easy. Just make this free phone call right now to get started. Sponsored by Specialty Medical. 800-260-1792. 800-260-1792. 800-260-1792. That's 800-260-1792. Do you want to make a difference in your community? Volunteer with your local fire department. Operational and non-operational positions are available, and training is provided. Anyone can be a volunteer. You just need the heart and drive to make a difference where it's needed most. When your community needs you, will you be there to answer the call? Learn more about volunteering at makemeafirefighter.org. That's makemeafirefighter.org. AM 1280, The Patriot, Northern Alliance Radio Network with me, Brad Carlson, The Closer, closing out this weekend's edition of Northern Alliance Radio Network programming. I used to be a rolling stone. 
Back with another segment with our guest via telephone, James Rosen. Again, he's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, as well as accomplished author, talking about his latest book entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Of course, talking about Antonin Scalia, the United States Supreme Court justice who sadly left us a little more than uh, seven years ago. Of course, this uh, 50-year period covers the time frame from Scalia's birth until he was officially confirmed to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, James Rosen, you you talked about uh, Antonin Scalia's legal career. We kind of left off last segment talking about uh, where it was discovered by a uh, former uh, a friend, a longtime friend of his, that uh, indeed his uh, goal was coming true to ultimately rise to the U.S. Supreme Court when he was uh, approved to an appellate court or confirmed uh, by the Senate to an appellate court uh, nomination by then uh, President Ronald Reagan in 1982. Uh, talk about a little bit about his personal life. Obviously, the legal profession in and of itself is very demanding. And then you rise to a prominent position of being a federal judge, whether it be an appellate court judge or ultimately a Supreme Court judge, a Supreme Court justice. That takes a tremendous amount of time and focus in one's life. And yet waiting for uh, Antonin Scalia at home is a wife and nine children. Uh, were you? Did you talk a little bit in the book, James Rosen, about how he was able to balance such a demanding career with uh, uh, a large Catholic family waiting for him at home? So, Brad, we mentioned uh, in the last segment that there were two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia and that both of them uh, turned out pretty well uh, in the same place, openly hostile to Justice Scalia and his legacy and what he stood for, his conduct. So this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, uh, really is the first book to treat all the different episodes and phases of his rise to greatness, his period leading up to his becoming a Supreme Court justice, with the requisite scope and detail that they deserved. Uh, episodes which in many cases have been uh, treated only cursorily or not at all in the previous uh, biographies. Uh, one area where, again, uh, we treat the subject matter in the depth that it, it warrants is his Catholicism and how it shaped him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the graduate of a Jesuit, two Jesuit uh, institutions, and, and he was the valedictorian at both. One was Xavier High School in Manhattan. The other was Georgetown University. Um, at Xavier, um, Scalia This was an unusual place, by the way, because it was both a Jesuit private school and a military academy. And Scalia, as a justice, used to delight in telling audiences how he would commute to that school back and forth from Queens to Manhattan with his twenty-two rifle casually slung over his shoulder. This was the early 1950s. Right, right. Um, uh, And there's a photo in the photo section of this book, which I'm very proud of because there are a number of previously unpublished photos. One of them is his high school graduation photo when he is the valedictorian. And there you will see Antonin Scalia in uniform with his chest full of medals for excellence as the valedictorian uh, and someone who was involved in all kinds and excelled in all kinds of extracurricular pursuits uh, with his black hair parted. This is uh, 1957. Black, jet black hair parted perfectly with a, with a winning smile, trim and, and handsome, um, quite unlike the sort of uh, the, the latter day Justice Scalia sure. that we might remember. Uh, and he carried with him forever uh, a story that happened to him that he saw that he observed in high school at xavier where the jesuits were fierce where they used to make them conjugate latin verbs under the threat of a 60 second stopwatch um and there was one particular teacher who had a great impact on scalia named father tom matthews who was a fearsome irish jesuit priest uh who spoke in a thick boston brogue and one day they were reading hamlet and a wise guy in the class, not Scalia, piped up with some sophomoric uh, remark. And Scalia never forgot this. He recounted it for the rest of his life. He called it the Shakespeare Principle, uh, where Father Matthews glared down at the offending wise guy and, and said in that thick Boston Irish brogue, Mister, when you're reading Shakespeare, Shakespeare's not on trial. You are. <laughs> I like it. And, and Scalia... Again, this reinforced for him what he was already receiving from his Catholic faith and from his father, the the Romance Languages professor who warned of the perils of of distortion in translation. Uh, This this reinforced Scalia's um, his profound reverence for sacred, inviolable texts. Scalia, as a justice, would always uh, reject the notion that he tried to imbue his judicial opinions with his Catholicism. Mm -hmm. He understood that his job as a judge and a justice was not to graft Catholicism into his opinions, but to follow the original meaning of whichever constitutional provision or statute was under under review. 
Um, and in fact, when one friend of his suggested in a published article that Scalia was uh, injecting his Catholicism into his opinions, it caused a rift between them that lasted five years. Mm-hmm. What Scalia would always say was uh, that there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. He would say the closest we could come to a Catholic hamburger is a hamburger that is made perfectly. <laughs> uh, I, I could just, I, I could totally hear him say that. It is, it is very uh, a low-key, understated voice. I love it. Uh, talk about uh, a little bit. You know, a lot was made, of course, with his uh, his friendship with his fellow associate justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course, they were diametrically opposite when it came to ju- uh, judicial philosophy, but nevertheless, it didn't stand in the way of what uh, developed into a very deep friendship. What some people may not know, and I'm sure what you talk about in the book, that actually preceded their time on the United States Supreme Court, James Rosen. Yes, uh, this is one of the sets of documents that I'm proudest to uh, bring to bear and bring to light for the first time in the pages of Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, for example, in, in before we get to RBG, uh, Justice Scalia, when he was serving in his seventh term on the court in 1992, invited a female attorney whom he had known for many years to serve as his interviewer for a secret oral history of his life. Okay. Um, that um, where he looked back on his whole life, and this was first unsealed in 2018. So this biography is the first to make use of that very important document, since Justice Scalia in chambers looking back on his life. Uh, we mentioned the, the FBI files. So one of the sets of papers that is published here for the first time is what I like to call the RBG Nino papers. Um, we've all heard about this celebrated famous friendship between uh, Justices Scalia and Ginsburg, uh, which has served as a kind of a, a model for comedy amongst ideological combatants, sorely in need today. It's been enshrined and memorialized in stage plays and in operas. Um, and I even saw a life coach recently urging us all to go out and find the Ginsburg to our inner Scalia. Um, but what is un- not commonly known is that this famous friendship did not begin on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. It actually began um, when both were serving as judges, one rung below the Supreme Court, on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which is often described as the second most powerful court in America. Okay. And at that time, 1982 to 86, before Scalia rises to the Supreme Court, you really had a murderer's row of judicial talent serving on that court as judges. Robert Bork. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr, Larry Silberman. Um, So uh, I went through the the 200 or so boxes of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers that are at the Library of Congress. Her Supreme Court papers are closed. Almost all of Justice Scalia's papers are closed. But RBG's uh, papers from her time uh, on the D.C. Circuit when she served alongside the man who became her best friend, Nino Scalia, those papers are open. And Brad, the the handwritten notes, the letters, the correspondence, the memos, the draft opinions that flew back and forth between their two chambers for those four years when they served on that court together before Scalia's elevated to the Supreme Court, and then she follows him there. Um, These these papers um, really um, capture not only two legal geniuses squaring off over issues like the First Amendment and whatever else arose before them as jurists, but also their sparkling wit and their affection for each other, far away, the RBG Nino papers are the most affectionate between any two judges on that court at that time, or between probably any two judges on any court at any time. And it really captures the birth and the blossoming of this famous friendship. And you can read it in real time in their own words for the first time in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. Getting a lot of fascinating insights uh, from this book, to be sure. So definitely a, a, a must read. Uh, James Rosen, I'll end with this. Uh, you know, you we think of uh, Supreme Court uh, confirmation processes, uh, particularly the, the modern day ones, uh, the three justices that uh, President Trump put forward and how very uh, acrimonious uh, those confirmations were. In fact, uh, the nuclear option had to be invoked in order for it to get below a 60-volt threshold for uh, confirmation uh, to the Supreme Court, which is something that was not heard of in a lot of eras, and particularly Antonin Scalia. I mean, this is just incredible to think about. And by the way, uh, speaking of his confirmation process, uh, I love uh, looking back at some of those video clips where uh, he was, uh, again, very understatedly uh, sitting there answering questions while smoking a pipe. Uh, Very, very scholarly, very erudite. I love that imagery. But he was confirmed uh, by the Senate 98 to 0, which I guess the question I would have is, 
Who are the two that didn't vote for him, James Rosen? <laughs> <laughs> well, Scalia himself had that same question, and the book begins with this anecdote of how he learned that he had been confirmed, how he had achieved the American dream. And it was from John Bolton, very familiar to us all, mm-hmm. as the former national security advisor and U.N. ambassador, uh, who at the time was a Justice Department official and whose job it was to track Scalia down on the night of the Senate vote and let him know what happened. And Bolton has never told this story until now. But when he found Scalia, who was uh, at the Willard Hotel, uh, in a uh, black tie dinner and enjoying uh, champagne and smoking, uh, and brought him to the and got him to come to the, uh, to the dedicated phone line for this purpose, Bolton says, "Congratulations, Nino! You've been confirmed ninety-eight to nothing. Isn't that amazing?" And there's silence on the other end of the line, and Scalia says, "Who were the two who didn't vote?" And 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 Bolton said, "Well, I, you know, it was Barry Goldwater and Jake Garn." But gosh, isn't this incredible? Congratulations. You've got to keep in mind when Scalia was approved, the Senate also approved by a much more bitter vote of 65 to 33, the elevation of William Rehnquist from associate to chief justice. And uh, then there's a pause on the line again. And, and Scalia says, Scalia says, excuse me one second, uh, Justice Scalia, now Justice uh, designate Scalia because he's been approved. Right. Uh, says, You mean to tell me with a hint of rebuke in his voice, you couldn't get Goldwater and Garn? And and Bolton, having been through what this bitter process with Rehnquist that they call it the Rehnquisition, thinks 98 to nothing is looking pretty good. Sure. And he says to him, Look, Goldwater we couldn't find. Uh, my research showed that Goldwater went home sick as the vote was delayed into the evening. Okay. And Garn is in the hospital donating his kidney to his daughter. <laughs> And he finally tells me he was growing irritated, and he says to him, concentrate, Nino. You've just been confirmed 98 to nothing. And there's a pause, and finally Scalia says, you're right. That's great. But I'll tell you what. You can find late into the the 21st century, 19 years on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia would be talking with students, and he would mention the the 98 to nothing vote, and he would say, so let's make it 100. This tiny imperfection. Of ninety-eight to zero bothered him <laughs> into the twenty-first century. That's fantastic. A wonderful anecdotes again shared by uh, James Rosen. He, the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, uh, as well as a multiple uh, author, multiple books, and talking about his latest one, of course, entitled "Scalia: Rise to Greatness, nineteen thirty-six to nineteen eighty-six," chronicling the life of former Supreme Court Justice, the late great Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, the first fifty years of his life, obviously preceding his time on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, James Rosen, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, sir. I look forward to the uh, next volume when you talk about the Supreme Court years. And uh, if you'd be so inclined, we'd love to have you back on once that book uh, comes out. We'd very much look forward to it. Well, if not before then, thank you for your kindness, Brad. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Uh, James Rosen, again, check out this fine book entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, chronicling the first 50 years of the life of Antonin Scalia. Brad Carlson, The Closer, back with another segment on the broadcast. Go nowhere. Dr. Gorka here, and you know me. I am very cynical about products, especially those that claim to help people suffering from pain. So when I tell you that Relief Factor truly works, I want you to know that I mean it. I suffered from a stiff lower back for almost a decade, one so painful it made it difficult to kneel in church on Sundays. When I finally decided to give Relief Factor a try, I didn't ever imagine that I would find myself free of the pain. But that's what happened. Happened. Now I take Relief Factor every day. Almost 70% of the more than half a million people who have tried Relief Factor end up ordering more. That's because it works for them the way it worked for me. Isn't it time for you to get out of pain? Your first step to becoming pain-free should be to order the three-week quick start for the discounted price of only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. Feel the difference. How does the baby move in your tummy? How does the baby eat? Can the baby hear me? How did the baby get in there? Wow, a pregnancy can sure generate a lot of questions. But what's important is that a baby is a baby inside and out of the womb. Not just after birth, but nine months before. 
at conception. That's right. Every baby is a miracle. Hello, my name is Marianne Kuharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America. If you know someone who is pregnant or in need of alternatives or assistance or would like to support the work of Pro-Life Across America, please visit our website at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org or better yet, simply dial pound 250 on your cell phone and say the keyword Pro-Life. Pro-Life Across America is non-political and totally educational. A baby's heart is beating 18 days from conception. We noticed we had a leak in our roof. Hey, I'm Brenda from Stillwater, Minnesota. We noticed some water staining in our ceiling by our chimney. This is our first time working with JTR Roofing. A close friend had recommended them and had a great experience. They ended up replacing our roof and performed the work on our chimney. I would recommend JTR Roofing because they were reliable, friendly. There were no hidden costs in their quotes. And the craftsmanship was outstanding. Not only did they do an outstanding job on our home, but also they support the community. They've had a good reputation in the 30 years that they've been in business. And just overall, it was just a wonderful experience working with the company. I was absolutely satisfied with the work. Absolutely. We're thinking about having our windows replaced and we will be calling JTR. Go to JTRRoofingInc.com. That's JTRRoofingInc.com. Hey, welcome back. AM 1280 The Patriot. Northern Alliance Radio Network with me, Brad Carlson, the closer. Closing out this week's edition of Northern Alliance Radio Network programming. Again, feel free to weigh in via Twitter at hashtag NarnShow. That's hashtag N-A-R-N Show for any comments or questions on this segment or previous segments. And uh, check out our Facebook page. Just do a search for the Northern Alliance Radio Network at Facebook.com. Give us a like or a follow if you haven't done so already. And as always, we uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, the guest of Palooza rolls on as we are now honored to be joined at this time by Patrick Hughes. He is the president and founder of an organization entitled the National Opportunity Project. By the way, you can check out their website, nationalopportunity.org. Uh, recent, recently, they uh, released a study indicating how low-income students were missing out on an on at least, at least, $736 million in federal COVID aid. Yeah, it was just a little less than or a little more than three years ago when we were declared to be in a COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, certainly the uh, virus and the potency of the virus itself has waned. Thank, thank goodness for that. But the uh, fallout and the after effects and the decisions made by our government and the handling of the uh, response to this virus certainly leave a lot to be desired, and this is certainly one aspect of it we want to get into. So without further ado, we welcome to, uh, via telephone the aforementioned Patrick Hughes. Uh, Patrick Hughes, good to be joined uh, by the broadcast today, sir. How are you? I'm great, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. So as I uh, was kind of mentioning in the uh, intro, Patrick Hughes, you know, uh, we talk about low-income students missing out on at least uh, $736 million in federal COVID aid now. Uh, this is kind of very involved study on uh, the funds that were earmarked and how this uh, particular came about. First of all, I guess uh, kind of give us some insight when it talks about low-income uh, students. Is this for both public and private schools, primarily private schools? Uh, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, so our report focuses exclusively on private schools, Brad. Okay. There were $5.5 billion that had been set aside in COVID funding uh, for private schools, much, much, multiples, much more for the public schools. And, you know, at the National Opportunity Project, I commissioned a report to determine where that money went and did it get to the kids for the needs that they needed to, to make up for all of this learning loss and some of the mental struggles that came with bad COVID policy. And, and what we discovered through months of research FOIA requests in a variety of states all over the country was that $736 million of that money, at least, could mm-hmm. be more. Mm-hmm. I think it could be more. It has not gotten out to private school kids. And I think there's a, a misunderstanding sometimes about who private school kids are. Sure. In, in, a, in, in so many cases, it's underserved communities, minority communities, children who are not affluent, who lost so much learning uh, during the COVID times and now are needing these funds 
uh, in order to try to make up for that, right, and use them for things like additional tutoring or technology or mental uh, health uh, initiatives. And, and we wanted to do this report to identify that and to arm parents. You know, you know, Brad, this is the age of the activist parent. You mm-hmm. know, parents are now empowered. They saw what education was like through Zoom, oh, yeah. now at the school boards, arm parents to go out with this information and figure out whether or not if they're affiliated with a private school or activists are affiliated with a private school or advocating for a private school, whether they can go figure out how to get some of the $736 million into the place it should have been originally. So I, I guess uh, specifically these funds that were earmarked, um, you know, we, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that uh, these kids certainly fell behind in their learning. I, I mean, when the pandemic began, there was about three months remaining in the school year, and a lot of schools just basically decided to uh, pretty much pause altogether. And then the following, and then the summer of 2020, obviously there was a lot of discussion, particularly with high-ranking officials from prominent teachers' unions on how to reopen schools and. It was very disjointed throughout the country. I mean, some states embraced the opportunity to get kids back in the classroom. Other states uh, refused to do so. I guess, did you kind of see, was this reflected in how some of the funds were dispersed or not, depending upon what states' policies were with their reopening, uh, Patrick Hughes? So we didn't do an analysis based on that. But one thing that I was actually interested in seeing Brad, was that uh, it's it's red states and blue states. Some of the red states did a great job in getting money out. Some of the blue state states did a great job in getting money out, okay. and vice versa. Sure. Um, there are states like Virginia that's now a blue state that has $68 million that's still out there. Mm-hmm. Your own Minnesota got $82 million in, in funding for private schools. There's still $20 million left that's been set aside mm-hmm. for private schools in Minnesota. So. It, it, it just it just depends on sort of how they did it. The, the real problem was that in the initial $5.5 billion, it was so restricted in what the private schools could use it for. It was really designed for COVID mitigation, extra classrooms, ventilation, HVAC, sure. PP&E, masks, things mm-hmm. of that nature, as opposed to the public schools had much more laxity. They could use it for much more educational purposes, as opposed to what the kids needed, which was there was a tutoring component, but not a not a robust tutoring component, not mental health, not technology, not new curricula. And that's what we think this $736 million or more money uh, should be able to be used for. And, and it's rare that there's money designated for a purpose. And that purpose, and it's just sitting out there, and it can, and, and can be gotten. And the, and the other problem with the program, Brad, is, is if the money doesn't get out, it reverts back to the governor. So this money is reverted to the governors, and they've been using it across the country for their own pet projects. For example, in Alaska, they've used it to teach the game Minecraft. Oh. In Oregon, they've done a big diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. So what, what we, at National Opportunity Project, what we want to do is make sure that parents activists and private schools and people across the country who are interested in this thing were under understood that there's so much money out there and there's this great opportunity to go and make sure that that money can get back to the to the private schools and so i'm going across the country doing programs like yours trying to educate and inform people about the fact that there's money out there in in minnesota 20 million dollars 20 million dollars parents and activists should know it's out there and that there can be a possibility of getting that to the private schools in, in your state. Now, when this uh, particular study was commissioned, was this sort of a, uh, a reactive uh, response to this in that were you hearing from, say, parents or activists or the private schools themselves saying, hey, we're not getting what we, what we were promised we were going to get, or given that, let's face it, our, our government as a whole does not have the greatest reputation as being uh, efficient with tax dollars, nor is there a lot of oversight. Was this something that you probably suspected, given the volume of money was not being handled efficiently and therefore were proactive in commissioning the study? I guess, uh, how did this come about, Patrick Hughes? Yeah, it's a great question, Brad. It's, it's a combination of everything you just said. Uh, okay. There was a couple of people in particular who came to me who were involved in the legislation and the legislative process who were concerned that because of the reversion clause to the governors, the money wouldn't get out. Uh, at the time, I was the head of a, a public policy litigation center, and so I uh, sent letters out to all the people across the 50 states letting them know that we were watching them. We wanted to make sure that this got this money got out, and if it didn't get out properly, we were going to keep an eye on the government, and there could potentially be litigation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that effort back then when I worked for that organization uh, steered governors and other people to get that, that money to the places where it should go. Um, then we just decided that, okay, now that we know that some of this money hasn't gotten out and we know that's the case, we know it's reverting back to the governors, we should figure out how much how much is not out there because potentially it's the largest you know, school of choice funding in, in, in history where you have you know, 736, it could be as much as a billion dollars that are sitting out there waiting to, for people to go get. Uh, and so it was that, and, and, and it was people in you know, the, the different communities, the private school communities saying, you know, we're having a hard time getting this money, or the money is restricted, and so we can only use it for this purpose. Or, this happens with private schools a lot, Brad, the fear that if they take public money, mm-hmm. it'll somehow make them have to answer to the state, which is something that, you know, obviously they don't want to do. And, you know, the, 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 the law was not crafted exactly the way that would be better. Uh, there was a lot of political horse trading. I feel like the public teacher school unions across the country wanted to ensure that a lot more money went to public schools and oh, like yeah. there could be restrictions in private schools. And so for all those reasons, but in answer to your question, yeah, it was all of those things. And we're, I'm so glad we did it because we did a ton of research. And the research has really proven out that there's an opportunity here, and rarely is there this kind of opportunity. Now that this uh, study has has been released uh, recently, and, and I imagine it's uh, at least hopefully has gotten the attention of some of the right officials within our government, have you heard from any elected officials, any bureaucrats, anybody who uh, sees the study? Because uh, if they weren't aware about how this was bungled, I mean, certainly they need, they need to be made aware of it. I mean, have you heard from any uh, government officials, Patrick Hughes? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are people, there are there are government officials that I'm sure are going to take this on. The one, the one thing I can say in response to that is, is you know, we we put a lot of pressure on, like for example, in Illinois, where we're located currently, um, you know, we did a ton of FOIA requests. We kept shining a light on the fact that there was 46 million dollars in Illinois that was out there. Um, we kept on them with our requests, and as it, and, and there were other activist groups that were, you know, hitting the governor and, and the other people trying to get this money out. And it turned out that that forty six million of the money in Illinois is going to go to five hundred and sixty private schools. So, so there isn't, there can be an impact. Our role in that impact is to make sure that the right people are armed with this information, and that's that's what we want to do. So, we'll continue to get it into the hands of the right people who can who can do things. Uh, to effectuate how this money can get into the place where it should go. Once again, we are joined uh, this segment by Patrick Hughes. He, the president and founder of the National Opportunity Project. Again, check out their website, nationalopportunity.org. This latest study that they have released uh, talking about how low-income students were missing out on on at least $736 million in federal COVID aid. Uh, Mr. Hughes, we need to take a quick break. Are you able to hold for one final short segment with us? I sure am. Thanks so much. Okay, fantastic. We'll be back with one final segment on the broadcast again with Patrick Hughes, president and founder of the National Opportunity Project. Again, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to weigh in via Twitter at hashtag NarnShow. That's hashtag N-A-R-N Show. Or follow us at Facebook. Just do a search for the Northern Alliance Radio Network at Facebook.com. Brad Carlson, the closer, back with one final segment on the broadcast. Go nowhere. AM 1280, The Patriot. Sightseeing in Paris, at the mall in Bloomington, or on horseback in Dallas. We're where you are. Listen to AM 1280, The Patriot, at odyssey.com or with the free Odyssey app. Epiphany Catholic School strives to grow your students' heart and mind to give students an education grounded in faith, knowledge, and virtue. Although educational styles change, the vision of faith-infused education never wavers. Epiphany is committed to forming students into saints and citizens for this world and the next. Epiphany Catholic School is located in Coon Rapids, serving students from pre-K through 8th grade. For more information, visit epiphanyschoolmn.org. At am1280thepatriot.com, you guide the conversation. Mike Gallagher securing our order. 
talk a little bit about how debilitating it has been for these Border Patrol agents who have been persecuted for trying to do their job. It is so sad what the Biden administration has done to these Border Patrol agents. The lack of support, the lack of resources. These Border Patrol agents don't have things like night vision goggles. They have to share them. They don't have enough working vehicles for all of the shifts. What a serious time for our nation. We've had Border Patrol agents actually die on the border because of the lack of resources. Visit am1280thepatriot.com, click on Hosts, and search for whatever's on your mind. You'll find a deep archive of intelligent commentary. Can your IRA stand up to the next financial crisis that our top economists are saying is at our doorsteps? By allocating a percentage of your IRA into physical gold and silver with a tax-free rollover, you can diversify and safeguard your holdings from turbulent markets and economic downturns by putting your IRA back on the gold standard. Find out how to safeguard your assets with a tax-free rollover with a Genesis Gold IRA, the only IRA that can hold physical precious metals. Call now for your free gold and silver report. Protect your IRA today with one simple phone call and learn how to qualify for up to $10,000 in free silver. Call Genesis Gold Group, empowering faith-driven stewardship. 800-504-1123. 800-504-1123. That's 800-504-1123. Your traditional water softener wastes water as if you ran a full washer for just a pair of socks. Commerce Wet Technology Softeners will save you water and salt. Save $400 when you trade in your old salt hog to Commerce Water. Go to Commerce.com. Hey, welcome back. AM 1280 The Patriot, Northern Alliance Radio Network. Is me, Brad Carlson. One final segment on the broadcast. Again, feel free to weigh in via Twitter at hashtag NarnShow. That's hashtag N-A-R-N show for any comments or questions for any of the topics we've covered today. And uh, check out our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook.com, do a search for the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Give us a like or a follow if you have not done so. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, again, wrapping up the broadcast with our guest segment Patrick Hughes, he the president and founder of the National Opportunity Project. Check out their website, nationalopportunity.org. They've released a study indicating how low-income students are missing out on, a, on at least $736 million in federal COVID aid. If you miss a previous segment, we've been talking in detail about how there were significant funds earmarked for private schools. And when you think of private schools, you may think of the uh, the upper crust but it's not necessarily the case. There were some underserved communities who, uh, whose uh, students attend private school, uh, very much missing out on these vital COVID funds. Uh, Mr. Hughes, you know, we talked a little bit about how a lot of this money was earmarked in, in an effort primarily to help students get caught up. I mean, uh, distance learning, uh, virtual learning is, is one thing, and but it doesn't provide certainly the dynamic of in-person learning within the classroom. And as a result, students have not only suffered uh, maybe educationally, but from a mental health standpoint, because as by our nature, we are very social creatures. So uh, from this study and with the funds still earmarked to get to these particular private schools, do you believe that there is still an opportunity to maybe bridge that gap to try to make up for lost time? I mean, uh, how how is your perspective uh, from that standpoint as far as uh, getting these funds distributed? Is there time to make up that gap, I guess is what I'm asking. So, Brad, you're right. There was a lot of learning loss and, and, and a lot of sort of mental struggle associated with that learning loss because of bad government policy, right? We knew mm-hmm. uh, shortly after, not too long into it, that you know kids weren't impacted by COVID, but schools stayed closed. Some of the private schools wanted to remain open. Um, but there was so much learning loss unnecessarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the good news is we live in the age of parent empowerment because of what happened to the kids during COVID. Parents became more engaged in their kids' school than they have ever been before, right, because they saw it on Zoom. They, they, they saw the loss. They saw the struggle. And so I think, yeah, can we make up for the loss? We absolutely can. And I think the reason we can do that is because parents are more engaged than they've ever been before. And, and that's why we wanted to shine a light on all of this money. 
you know, $736 million for private schools or more is an enormous amount of money. Um, you know, you're talking about state. I think I might have mentioned this before, like Ohio has 51 million. Virginia has 68 million. Washington has 41 million. Like I said, Minnesota has 20 million. This could go a long way to help, you know, at least maybe not eradicate, but to sort of buttress some of that learning loss with uh, more tutoring, with technology, with new curricula, um, you know, with some mental health services. And I think that if parents want to be active and if activists want to be active, they can use this report as a means by which to, you know, figure out a way to make sure that this money gets to their children and so we can make up for it. So the answer is, yes, I think we can do it, but it's going to take parents, it's going to take activists, it's going to take all of us. And I can't tell you how important it is. Right? Every generation of school children, they're the future of our country. And this generation, for lack of a better term, got screwed by bad policy. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for all of us, the adults in the room, the people who care about children, the people who care about uh, you know, uh, education and the next generation to do the work that's going to require to give these kids what they deserve and what they lost because adults made bad decisions. As you alluded to, Patrick Hughes, obviously parents were, were much more motivated to get involved, particularly when they saw uh, what the curriculum was like in their kids' school. We won't necessarily get into the, the to the content of that, but seeing how it just wasn't sustainable for a number of months, much less an entire school year, which some kids went through virtually. So, Obviously, parents have already figured out or have worked to get engaged, but if they may not know this aspect of it where the funds weren't getting to where they were earmarked for. So last minute and a half, Patrick Hughes, any advice you could give to the general public? There are listeners out there if they want to get more involved in ensuring, possibly bringing more attention to this study you've commissioned. Um, what can the folks do? Yeah, like you've said many times in this broadcast, which I appreciate, go to nationalopportunity.org. Read the report. It's, it's extensive. It's an enormous amount of work, and it lays out the money that's available in each state. So a parent in each state can go and look at the report and make a determination as to what they can do to go talk to you know the people who are in charge of where the money is going to go, um, to get together with uh, people in their community, to go meet with, with the activists there and empower themselves. The purpose of the report is to empower themselves. So what I want them to do is you know go to nationalopportunity.org, and look at the report and then make decisions about how, hey, how can I go help and, and, and make sure that this money gets out to the right kids, to my, to my kid, right? Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's what I'd like for them to do. And that's why we did the report, to empower them, to arm them with the ammunition they need to go make it happen. Uh, very good, if not very sobering information delivered to us uh, by Patrick Hughes, again, the president and founder of the National Opportunity Project, nationalopportunity.org. Uh, Patrick Hughes, thank you so much for joining us today. Great information. Appreciate it very much, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Brad, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. AM twelve eight of the Patriot Northern Alliance Radio Network, folks. I've enjoyed it. Godspeed, my friends. Have yourself a blessed week. To be black in America today is to be labeled and used. But it's not because America is a systemically racist country. It is not. It is not. It's not. It's because the loudest voices who say they have all the answers are actually the problem. There are progressive forces and organizations dividing us as a people and as a country. They stoke hatred and division to hide the real problems and keep us angry. And now's the time to return to our cultural roots of faith, family, and education. There is a difference between being woke and being awakened. We invite you to join us. We invite you to join us. We invite you to join us. And take charge of our culture and our future. I'm Kendall Qualls, and together we'll put our families on the road to prosperity. Learn more at TakeChargeMinnesota.com. Wesley Financial Group is not a law firm. This story is called The Ugly Truth About Timeshare. If you think you've done your family a favor by buying a timeshare, you need my help. Hello, I'm Chuck McDowell, CEO and founder of Wesley Financial Group. Ten years ago, I started helping folks cancel their timeshare. And in the process, started what's now called the timeshare cancellation industry. Timeshare is the only thing that you can buy that you can't tell me how much it's going to cost or when it's going to end. When you buy a timeshare, you give them a blank check to fill out any amount they want for annual maintenance and assessment fees. The crazy thing is, this never ends. Even when you die, your family's now going to be stuck with this burden. Stop the insanity today. 
call my office now. If we take you as a client, I guarantee we'll cancel your time share or you'll pay nothing. Call for your free information kit. 800-626-5252. That's 800-626-5252. 800-626-5252. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply or play. Stop, opt out. Visit a website for financing details. Windowappointmentnow.com. Attention all homeowners. Do you know when to replace your windows? Feeling too hot or cold? It's time to replace. Fog between the glass. Time to replace. Spending too much on expensive energy that literally goes out the window? It's definitely time to replace. If you've put off replacing windows in your home because it's too expensive, here's great news. You can now get a free in-home window consultation and free price quote from Renewal by Anderson, the company with the most five-star reviews among leading full-service window replacement companies. And right now, you can buy one and get one 40% off. Just text EXTRA to 200-300 for your free consultation on top-quality affordable windows or patio doors, all with super affordable financing options. Text EXTRA to 200-300 right now to buy one and get one 40% off. But hurry, these big dollar savings won't last long. Text the word EXTRA to 200-300. Don't wait. Text EXTRA to 200-300. AM 1280, the page. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.